0: All right, so turn to Matthew 5. As I mentioned before, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're here the last week, uh, you know that what we're doing today is the second half of the Beatitudes. And talk to some of you a little bit afterwards. And, you know, the fact that we are just flying through the Beatitudes shows you the pace that we're going to have. I mean, 14 weeks, and yet there's a lot of ground to cover. And so we're going to be looking at the last four Beatitudes this morning. But by way of introduction, by way of introduction, I want to ask this question: What motivates you to do good? What motivates you to do the right thing, to do good deeds, to treat others well? What drives you to do good? And I want you to really think about that this morning. Last week, uh, you, you're kind of realizing it's early, but we gotta—we kind of really—I want you to think deeply. Uh, So drink some coffee, wake up a little bit. What motivates you? Is it fear? Is it fear that motivates you to do good? Afraid of what others might think of you? Afraid of being punished by society? Afraid of being punished by God, maybe? What motivates you to do good? Last week we looked at the philosophy, really briefly, of Aristotle. And we saw that what Aristotle had to say is that everything that we think about the world is driven by one thing, happiness. If you don't think that's true, I mean think about I mean just who you are. Whatever you think is going to make you happy is going to drive all of your actions. This morning I want to begin by looking at another philosopher, Immanuel Kant. And the reason why I'm looking at all these philosophers is because all of this actually influences our thinking as an American culture more than we realize. We are a Western culture and Western philosophy is underneath the little things that we think and do. This is what Kant said ha, ha, had to say about what motivates us to do good. He said, a good will is not good because of what it affects or accomplishes. It is good in and of itself, whether or not it prevails. He, sa- he went off and say it is not enough that it should conform to the moral law, but it also must be done for the sake of the moral law. In other words, it's not just what you do, it's why you do it that makes it good. So it's not enough just to say, okay, tell me what the rules are, and I'm going to do the rules, and I might even have a wrong motive to do a right thing. And you would say, that's not it. That's not what it means to do good. That's not what it means to be a moral man. You could have a wrong motive and do the right thing and make that right thing wrong. Does that make sense? And so what he has to say then is this. What matters is not just what you do, but why you do it. Or another question is, why do you do the things that you do? Now, picking up from last week, I would argue that the answer to that question, even for Kant, is happiness. That last week, as we looked at the Beatitudes, we recognized that each one of those little Beatitudes, if you heard them before, blessed, right? Blessed, blessed, blessed. You could translate that word in the Greek as happy. As happy. So, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. You could translate as happy are the merciful. And what Jesus is trying to do, be Beatitudes, and really the whole entire Summer of the Mount, is to turn our world upside down. He's not just trying to give us a bunch of do's and don'ts, not a bunch of just rules, a moral list, but He's going right after our heart and right after our worldview. He's going right after our vision of happiness. Because you recognize if he just gives us a bunch of do's and don'ts, some of us might be able to just do those. Maybe some of us not. But that's not really getting to the heart of the matter. What he aims to do is to completely call us to reimagine what happiness really is. And it's not what you think. Another way you can think about that is the good life. What are you after? What drives you? What do you think is going to be a good life that you're trying to make for yourself? James K.A. Smith says this, he says, The vision of a good life captures our hearts and imaginations, not by providing a set of rules or ideas, but by painting a picture of what it looks like to flourish. You, whether you realize it or not, are driven by this vision for the good life. Not just by a set of rules and ideals, but something much deeper. And Jesus is trying to completely pull that vision out of you and replace it with something different. The vision of a kingdom life. Last week we said, right here, this is our thesis. If there's a thesis statement for the, Be- for, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the, the one thing that Jesus wants us to get, the main point, it's this right here. Is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That when you are seeking the kingdom of God, everything changes. Everything changes. And so the Beatitudes for us paint a picture of not the good life, but the kingdom life. And last week we saw how this kingdom life changes the way we think about ourselves. That it's actually happy and good to be humble, right? To be mournful, to be poor in spirit. This week we're going to see how the vision of the kingdom life changes the way that we interact with the world around us. Not just the way we view ourselves, but the way that we interact with the world around us. And this is going to be in four ways. Real briefly, four ways that we'll look at this morning. First, the kingdom life is marked by mercy. The kingdom life is marked by mercy. Second, the kingdom life is marked by purity of heart. Purity of heart. Third, the kingdom life is marked by reconciliation. And finally, as we close out the Beatitudes over these two weeks, the kingdom life is marked by persecution. Mercy, purity of heart, reconciliation, and persecution. The first one, The kingdom of life is marked by mercy. I want you to look with me. Matthew 5, verse 7. This is the fifth of the Beatitudes. And Jesus says this, Blessed are happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So I want you to really think about what he's saying this morning. He's saying, blessed are the merciful. If you are a merciful man, you are blessed. Why? Because you will receive mercy. Now, for some of us, this side of the Reformation, you might read that and say, okay, Jesus, it seems like you're saying that I need to be merciful, and if I'm merciful, then you're going to be merciful to me. Sounds a lot like actually what Jesus says a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But I want you to see is that this is not an if-then, right? It's not a, a conditional thing in the sense that, hey, if you do this, Jesus is going to do this. No, what he wants you to see is this is intimately linked. That, In other words, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if God is going to have mercy on you because he has died and rose again for you, then that should change you. That should change how you operate in the world. That, above all else, if you recognize, man, you've been shown mercy by God himself and you did not deserve it, then that should actually transform you into being merciful as well. The idea of mercy is central not only to the gospel, not only to the New Testament, but also to the Old. Uh, Micah 6.8, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good. Remember, we're talking about what is goodness. Micah tells us what goodness is. He's told you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy? and to walk humbly with your God. Sounds a lot like the Beatitudes, doesn't it? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. The idea of being a merciful man, essential for what it means to be us to be made in the image of God. There's probably not a better example of what mercy is than the parable of the Good Samaritan. Last Sunday, Chad preached, and he, as he was preaching through James, he referenced the Good Samaritan. I want to look at it for just a moment this morning, because I think as you study the Sermon on the Mount, you recognize this is Jesus, and he's a preacher. He's preaching in this moment, and he preached many other times as well, using parables. So all of this is connected, right? Everything that Jesus taught, everything that he said is connected. The parable of the Good Samaritan, if you want to turn there, this is Luke 10. And you've probably heard it before. You've studied it before, perhaps. It's a story that Jesus tells about a man. A man who comes to Jesus, who's a lawyer, right? An expert in the law. In other words, his vision for the good life, to be happy, is to follow the law perfectly. To do it all right. But part of his, what drives him, so remember, it's not just doing right, it's your motivation. Part of his motivation to do right is to puff up himself. To be better than everybody else, right? It's self-righteousness. So this lawyer comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what should I do to inherit uh, eternal life? And Jesus says, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, Well, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and all your soul, with your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So love God, love others. And Jesus says, Well, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But here we see what motivates him, what is heart. It says, desiring to justify himself. What motivates you to do good? Are you trying to justify yourself? If you're trying to justify yourself by being merciful, you do not understand mercy. The only way that you can be merciful to someone else is to recognize that God has been merciful to you. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus continues by telling a parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. He was stripped and beat and departed and left dead. So here's a man left for dead, bleeding, dying on the side of the road. And then Jesus says that three different men come by. The first is a priest. Now you would think a priest would have something to know about what it means to do mercy, right? He knows Micah 6.8 very well. And yet what does Jesus say the priest does? You would think he has a good vision, right, of what it means to be a good person. And yet the priest sees this man lying on the road, and he makes sure to avoid him, goes to the other side, and goes on his way. There's a Levite, also an expert who knows the law, knows the Old Testament, knows the the Torah. The Levite passes by, he does the same thing, completely avoids this man. No, it's not until a Samaritan comes why it gets its name, the Good Samaritan. Now, if you know anything about Samaritans and Jews, it was like the racial tensions uh, that we knew in the 60s. Think about today, uh, what's happening over in the Middle East, the kind of war and fighting that's going on. I mean, they hated each other. And yet this Samaritan stops, and not only does he pick this man up and wash him off, but he goes out of his way to take him to a hotel, pays for a couple nights stay, and then tells the hotel owner that any charges that he racks up, he'll pay for. And so Jesus looks at this man, this lawyer, who wants to justify himself, and he says, tell me, which one of these men, which one of these men loved their neighbor? And this is what he says, the one who showed him mercy. It's a picture of what mercy really looks like. Mercy that crosses socioeconomic, cultural divide. Mercy that's inconvenient. Mercy that says, no, it's not just I've been wronged. It has nothing to do with that. So often, I think when we think of mercy, we think, well, someone's wronged you, and so it's good to have mercy upon them. No, mercy in the sense that here's a wrong that's been done, period. Not to you, but to this person. What does it mean to restore this person? to dignity and worth and value. That's what it means to have mercy. And so not only are we given this picture of what mercy looks like, but we're also given a picture of what mercilessness looks like. That a priest and a Levite, of all people who should understand this, didn't get it. And perhaps because it was inconvenient, perhaps because they wanted nothing to do with the Samaritan, they avoided it altogether. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You have been literally picked up out of a ditch. You have been rescued. You have been redeemed. God has shown you mercy. And because he has shown you mercy, you now as a man are called to do likewise. And that's just because it's the right thing to do. Because that's what the kingdom life is all about to bring the mercy of Jesus Christ to the world around us. To show the world that this is what love actually looks like. This is what it means to be merciful. Why? Because Jesus Christ will have mercy on you as well. Blessed are the merciful, that's the first thing. Second, the kingdom life is marked by purity of heart. The kingdom life is marked by purity of heart. Jesus continues, verse eight. He says, blessed or happy are the pure in heart. For they shall see God, okay, happier the pure in heart. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be pure in heart? Again, I think to understand what Jesus might mean by pure in heart, we're going to go to Jesus. Matthew 23, 25 through 28. You can write this down or just listen. You can turn there. Matthew 23. Jesus says this later in Matthew. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, some of you know my story, uh, and I've told it, I mean, many times in our church. I grew up in a church, grew up in a Christian home, but I hated it. And I hated the idea of church. I thought it was uh, bogus. And, And really at the center of that is I thought Christians were hypocritical. I thought they were judgmental. I thought they didn't actually know what they were saying, that they believed. And it took me a long time, even after I became a Christian, to recognize that the fact that a bunch of hypocrites belong in the church is actually really good news. Because really the reality is, is that every one of us in this room are a bunch of hypocrites. And I would argue that I was a hypocrite too, by judging a bunch of Christians for being judgmental. You see what I mean? <laughs> and so I think just it's a human condition that we want to look one way to people, but deep down, we're different. And all of us in this room know this is true, right? That we want to be thought well of by others, and so we will do anything. We know how to play the game, especially by now, as men. We, we know how to play the game and how have other people look at us a certain way. But deep down, inwardly, we are something completely different. And this is what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, listen, you, you spend so much time and energy you Pharisees, you hypocrites, by trying to just wash the outside of yourself, by trying to just look the part. But you haven't taken the time to actually wash your heart as well. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus taught over and over and over again in the Gospels. That a life of godliness is much deeper than what you can see on the outside. Again, remember what Kant said it's not just enough to do the right thing, it's what motivates you. Jesus is trying to go after the heart. And here in the Beatitudes, he's saying, listen, happy, blessed is the man who is pure in heart, who's allowed the gospel to penetrate down to the depths of his core. Not just trying and striving to do the right thing so others can look at him and say, wow, man, that's a great guy. But no, so much so, that your heart has been transformed from the inside out, that it doesn't matter what anybody thinks about you. Because Jesus Christ himself, God, has looked down on you and said, this is my son, who I love. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. The idea of purity of heart really strikes at what it means to be a hypocrite. Or the way James talks about it, to be the dumbbell minded man. Again, last week we looked at this in James. James 4 And 4 and 8, similar language from James, the brother of Jesus. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus would say something similar, right? You can't love the world and love God. James here is saying that makes you an adulteress, right? Makes you adulterer. That makes you a divided man, James will say. James says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, James says. You double-minded. Okay, so what does it mean to be pure of heart? It means that you are not doubly-minded. That you are not divided in your soul. One part of you loving the world and one part of you loving God. It's that you have this purity about you, the single-minded devotion after God. Kierkegaard said it this way. It's actually the title of one of his books, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. It's actually based on James, this passage. Purity of heart is to will one thing. What is purity of heart is to will one thing? What is that one thing? God himself, It's not enough just to say, okay, well, I don't want to love the world. What what Jesus is trying to help us to see is that he is calling us to love God above all other things. That that would be our single-minded devotion on him. Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift his soul to what is false. Who does not swear deceitfully. Do you love God? It's a really simple question with a complicated answer. <laughs> Do you really love him with the purity of heart in which he loves you? Because the reality is that God is single-mindedly devoted to you. And though you are faithless, he remains faithful. He loves you with the purity of heart that he is calling us to as well. Third, the kingdom life is marked by Reconciliation. Look at verse 9. The kingdom life is marked by reconciliation. Jesus says, blessed are happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Somebody who isn't just desiring peace in their own life, but is actually seeking out peace in the life of others. Someone who's driven so much by this idea of peace that even though they might not be wronged against, even though their own life might be peaceful, wherever they see discord, they enter in and they seek peace. What does that look like? Or perhaps when you have been wronged, when somebody is coming right after you, and rather than fighting fire with fire, you desire to make peace. The Bible gives that idea, peacemaking, another word. And the word is this, reconciliation reconciliation. It's a word that Paul uses, very unique word for Paul to use, because at the time what it had to do with is any kind of reconciliation of relational strife. Now we've seen this in our own world, right? The idea of racial, social reconciliation, that where there are two opposite uh, groups that oppose one another, that reconciliation means that not only would they forgive one another, but they would actually become friends. The idea that any wrong that is done between two people is not just erased and forgiven, but is actually overcome with friendship. Or the idea of reconciliation within a marriage. Probably the best picture of it. That you have a husband and a wife who are separated. Perhaps they're even divorced at this point. And because of the powerful work of the gospel, they are now reconciled. Right? Not just forgiven, but they actually come together. in true reconciliation in that moment is that they would become husband and wife again. Paul talks about it this way, 2 Corinthians 5. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He reconciled us to himself. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God was completely and utterly opposed to you. That we, our relationship with God was so broken that Paul would go on to say that we are dead. That while we were enemies, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were his enemies, right? we were traitors. We were opposed to God. We wanted nothing to do with him. And yet God reconciled us to Himself. He healed that relationship. In other words, He was the peacemaker. And He came down and He made peace with us. Reconciliation, first and foremost, it has to do with our relational standing before God. And it's not something that we have healed. God has healed it on our behalf. That's what Paul says, that He has reconciled us to Himself. But now... Paul says, You are now called to the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? Blessed are the peacemakers. You are called to make peace. You are called to make peace. Why? Because God has made peace between you and Him. And now you are called to extend that peace to the world around you. Uh, there's an Arab Palestinian Christian. His name is Daoud Nassar. He lives in a small farm about six miles outside of Bethlehem. Now, if you've ever been to Bethlehem, you know that uh, when you're traveling, you actually go through a wall because the the fighting is that tense and it's that dangerous that as you pass into Bethlehem, you are now uh, no longer in Israel, but you've crossed over. So much so that when I was there, our our Jewish uh, Israeli guide had to get off the bus. They wouldn't let her in. The tensions are so thick. And you, I mean, you see this on the news every single day. The tensions are so thick. To imagine what it must be like to grow up with bullets flying past all the time. Every single member of, of Israel, every single citizen is a member of the army. Think about that. That's crazy. There's no draft in Israel. Everybody's already drafted. And you are issued a citizen issue machine gun. Stays under your bed. So, whenever you're called upon, you can go fight. That is a crazy way to live. And on the other side, the Palestinians are living the exact same way. And with each passing generation, there's more and more hatred. And so, this Palestinian Christian has a farm, and this is what he does with it he started a Christian camp. Like TBRM, right? Six miles outside of Bethlehem. But who does he invite? A bunch of children who are Muslim who are Jewish and who are Christian. Why? Because at that young age, they don't know hatred yet, quite like they would later. It hasn't been taught to them. And so he is teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ, a bunch of Arab, Jewish, and Christian children, so that with maybe the next generation, peace would be made. That's what it means to be a peacemaker, why would we do this? Well, Jesus tells us, because you've been called a son of God. You've been called a son of Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God has shown you peace. He has made you who was his enemy now his son, and because of your identity as his son, you are called to make peace with the world around you. Lastly, this morning, and then you'll go to your tables, the kingdom life is marked by persecution. Kingdom life is marked by persecution. Jesus ends the Beatitudes in this way. Verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Or remember our translation. Think about it. Happy. Happy are the persecuted. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't usually associate happiness with persecution. And I wonder this morning, even as we use that word, do you know what persecution feels like? Have you ever been persecuted? I remember the first time I ever felt it. I was in Morocco, and it was probably for a really dumb reason. But my friend shared the gospel with a fundamentalist Muslim wearing his full garb, and uh, he hit him in the face. He said, well, you probably had it coming to you. It's Kind of a dumb thing to do. But who knows what that seed did. I know we'll pray for that. But that's persecution. Now, here in America, we don't really feel that as much. At least not yet. But we're already seeing with each passing generation, our persecution might not be physical. We don't fear for physical persecution, but it could certainly be social. And I think the way that we typically feel this the most is fear. Fear that others might look at us like we're weird or strange that we're on the wrong side of social trends, right? The wrong side of a business decision because of what we believe. And here Jesus is saying, hey, in all those moments, at any moment you might feel persecuted, listen, happy, blessed, happy is the man who is persecuted. Again, Jesus says this uh, in John 15, he says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In other words, Jesus is saying, the closer that you follow me, the more that you should be expect to be persecuted. Why? Well, not because of what you're doing. But because you are just like Jesus. And if the world persecuted Jesus, of course they're going to persecute his followers. That's what Jesus is saying. You should expect it. Jesus goes on in the Sermon of the Mount, and he goes on on this idea. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he goes on and says, rejoice. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus says, not only are you a happy man if you are persecuted because of my sake, because of the sake of the gospel, because you are living a certain way, or you are speaking and proclaiming the gospel that you have seen and heard, not only are you happy if you are persecuted, but he says, rejoice. Celebrate. Celebrate in the midst of your persecution. Uh, In the same way that we probably have no idea what it looks like to be truly persecuted as Americans. Not yet. Not yet. We have no idea what it means to rejoice. What does it look like to rejoice in the midst of persecution? I don't know if you remember this image. I certainly do. I don't remember how long it was ago, but there's a, the beach. And a bunch, I think it was 21, Coptic Christians wearing orange with bags over their heads. You remember the image? And they're on a beach, and ISIS has them lined up, and every single one of them is martyred. They're beheaded right there on the beach, and it was one of those first, when we first began to realize this is what we're dealing with in ISIS, right? I mean, this kind of brutality, that they would not only do this, but they would film it, and they would broadcast it all over the world. And one of the brothers of two of the men, there were two brothers in that you know, group of 21, one of the brothers of those two men was asked what he thought about it, and would he retaliate? And he said this, he said, he thanked ISIS for not editing out of that video the last words of those men before they were beheaded. Do you know what they said? Lord Jesus Christ. And so he thanked ISIS for not editing that out so that their testimony of the gospel would go forward all over the world. He said that they... And the families of these men celebrated that day. They celebrated. They celebrated. And they congratulated one another. And he said, we are proud to have this number of people from our village who have become martyrs. And you hear that and you think, that just seems, that's just crazy. That just seems extreme. And you'd be right, it is. Because they're living in a world where they know persecution every single day of their lives and when the unthinkable happens and they lose two people to persecution they actually die for their faith they're rejoicing because the gospel is proclaimed so the question for us this morning as I leave you to your tables is this what does that look like for us who are not gonna be persecuted physically probably not in this lifetime but we are gonna be persecuted socially what does it look like, maybe not to martyr your life physically, but to martyr your life socially, to lay it li- your life down for the gospel, to the point where whatever you face socially, whatever you lose in this life because of that, you would actually rejoice. Blessed are the ones. Happy are the ones who are persecuted. For they are called to rejoice and be glad gospel is being proclaimed. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, thank you so much for your son, for sending your son Jesus Christ, who made peace with us so that we could now be peacemakers, who showed mercy to us so that we could now be merciful. Father, who was persecuted to the brink, who died and rose again for us, persecuted on our behalf, died, buried, risen again, so that we now could walk in newness of life, that we would seek first the kingdom, the kingdom of your Son, Jesus Christ, and then so that we would be transformed all the way to the heart from the inside out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.